Usually, the Sunday after Thanksgiving begins Advent, but this year it doesn't. And so I thought it would be appropriate for us to continue the celebration of Thanksgiving and to focus on it this morning. Please join with me now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your grace. We give you thanks, for we know that all that we have comes from your hands to us. We gratefully receive it. And Lord, as we do, and as we've come here to worship you, and Lord, we pray that you will give us even greater understanding of thanksgiving, that we might continue to worship you in your word, and that, Lord, it might touch and define us in even greater ways as a result. We ask for your Holy Spirit now to speak into our hearts and into our minds that word we need to hear for ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The pilgrims who came to America in 1620 were English Protestant reformers. They came from Scrooby in northern England. And they were known as people of the word. They loved the word of God and knew their Bibles very well. They suffered, like all the reformers, persecution, imprisonment, and even execution at the hands of the church and also at the hands of nationalistic leaders, as was going on throughout Europe at that time, and the intrigue that was uh, happening. After a hundred years of persecution and imprisonment and execution, their religion being outlawed, the pilgrims determined to leave. They would go to Holland where they could practice their religion freely. They had to leave in secrecy, though, because while they couldn't practice their religion in England and while they weren't wanted in England, they couldn't leave England without England's permission and England wouldn't give it to them. So the men and the women left secretly. They took only what they could carry that wouldn't bring attention to them. They hoped to go unnoticed. But the women and children were stopped and whatever they were carrying was confiscated. Eventually, they met up at the shoreline where longboats came to get them, and by boat, they were taken to Holland. They arrived there in 1609, 150 to 200 pilgrims, and they settled in the town of Leiden. They had mostly been farmers and sheep herders, but now, when they came to Leiden, there was a booming textile industry, and most of them worked in that. Others became tailors and carpenters and printers. It was hard work, and there was little time for advancing the gospel. And it was not what they had expected and hoped. War with Spain was about to break out. The cities throughout Europe were rioting, and the pilgrims found their children unduly influenced by secular values. So they decided that they would leave and start over once again, this time in the new world. Yes, it would be hard, and yes, the dangers would be great. 
but they would have an opportunity to worship freely and not be influenced by secular society. The majority of the pilgrim congregation remained in Leiden, while a much smaller group left to establish a pilgrim settlement where the others would eventually come. At least that was the plan. There were 102 passengers on the Mayflower. Approximately 40 of them were Scrooby Pilgrim Separatists. The rest were adventurers and businessmen. They left for England in September of 1620. It took them 65 days to cross the Atlantic, and they arrived at Cape Cod in mid-November. They sent men out to reconnoiter the area. They spent four weeks looking around and checking it all, and then they came back to the boat, and the boat picked up anchor and moved to Plymouth Rock, where there was plentiful water supply, a good harbor, cleared fields so that they could farm more easily, and they realized it was a more favorable place for a settlement. On December 16th, they arrived and began to build their town. Death had already been a reality for the pilgrims. One child was stillborn on the boat. Bradford's wife, the governor of the the, uh, compact, the Mayflower Compact, his wife had fallen overboard just the day before They had left for Plymouth Rock and drowned. The winter was cruel and it was cold. By spring, half of the people who had come to the new world died from scurvy, illness, or exposure to cold. The last person didn't leave the Mayflower until March 21st. And of the 18 couples, married couples, who were pilgrims, 15 of them had experienced either the death of one spouse or both spouses. They suffered greatly and they dealt with great hardship coming here to this new world. Those who remained learned to farm and hunt and fish for their food. They made friends with the Indians as they could and in the fall, After the harvest, Governor Bradford declared that they should have a day of thanksgiving. Although life had been hard, although they had suffered great losses, they stopped to celebrate the goodness of God, giving thanks for his faithfulness. They were people of the word, and they knew what the word told them about gratitude to God. I invite you now, if you have your Bible, to open it up to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. It is there that we see one of several admonitions that the Lord offers in his word about giving thanks. As Paul is writing his letter to the church at Thessalonians, it is coming to a close. And he now provides some general exhortations that he throws together in, in a kind of a, just a piecemeal um, way. And they are meant um, to talk to them about life together. We read this in 1 Corinthians, Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances 
For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The big idea today is this, that giving thanks in all circumstances has the power to change your life. Now you might think that I'm taking a page out of the playbook of um, some of the name it, claim it preachers or the positive mental attitude gurus. I am not. I am simply telling you from the Scriptures that God is able to change our life when we are thankful and grateful to Him. Giving thanks in all circumstances is powerful, especially when we are facing difficulty, disappointment, discouragement, hardship, or persecution like the church at Thessalonica. We know we're supposed to give thanks in all circumstances, don't we? We know when things get hard, we should be thankful. But most of us, if we're honest, I'm going to raise my hand here, we complain and we whine. And if you think that I don't, talk to my wife, Marcia. She'll be happy to tell you about it. Complaining and whining changes nothing. It only makes things worse. But giving thanks in all circumstances, especially in the difficult, changes our perspective. It frees us up to live with greater trust and faith in God, and it changes our behavior patterns in the present and also magnifies our witness to the world. The text describes three behaviors which are in the will of God for us in Christ. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. In all of these three cases, we find that these actions are present tense. We are to do them now. We find that they are commands. They are not suggestions and they are not recommendations. And in all three, no matter what we are experiencing, we are to engage in these behaviors always, without ceasing, in all circumstances. And while all three of these things go together, we're going to run quickly through the first two because... I would like to focus on the last one, giving thanks in all circumstances, since it is the focus of the big idea. We'll begin with rejoice always. What does it mean for us to rejoice always? Well, it will help us to look at what it doesn't mean and what it does mean so that we get a better understanding of it. It doesn't mean that we are happy all the time. It doesn't mean that we never feel sad. It doesn't mean that we deny our feelings and pretend something else. Consider Jesus at the grave of Lazarus. His good friend had died. 
Jesus stood before the tomb, and the shortest verse in all the Bible says, He wept. Life is filled with hard things. Being people of faith, we have hard choices to make too. And we have to face things. And what God's Word tells us that how we face it matters. So what does rejoicing always mean? Well, it means that we choose to be defined by the spiritual reality of our faith in Jesus. We choose to be defined by the spiritual reality of our faith in Jesus. We believe by faith that we are not our own, but that we have been bought with a price. We believe by faith that we are no longer citizens of this world, but rather we are citizens of the world to come. So we can rejoice because we are citizens of heaven and that we will be with Jesus in glory. We believe by faith that God is sovereign. And we can rejoice always because in the face of difficulties, we nevertheless know that God will use it for our good. He promises to use it to develop our character and spiritual maturity. And he promises to bring good out of those situations. It is precisely because we belong to God and are walking with him that we can rejoice always in all things, regardless of our circumstances. Let's look at the second admonition, pray without ceasing. Let's look again at what it doesn't mean and what it does mean. It doesn't mean that we are in constant formal prayer with God. Disciplined, regular, formal times of prayer are essential, and they are healthy for us spiritually. And we need to put those sides of time, uh, time aside so that we can spend time with God. Prayer is not to be overlooked. It cannot be overlooked. It cannot be neglected. Prayer is part of the very spiritual armor of God. He gives it to us so that it will edify us and help us. We can go to him and make supplication and pour out our cares upon him. And while prayer is good, and we must do it, we know that we cannot pray all the time. We just spent time in the study of Amos in which action upon our faith is essential. If all our time is just spent in prayer, where is the action of faith? Now there are some of us who prefer the action of faith, and we need to add prayer to that. We cannot diminish that. We must pray without ceasing. But praying without ceasing doesn't mean that we're in constant formal prayer. Well, what does it mean? 
It means that we are in a constant spirit of dependence upon God. Because we go to God in prayer, we demonstrate our need for God, our trust in God, our reliance upon God, that God is sovereign over all things. Not just us. Jesus said to his disciples that we should pray always and never lose heart. To pray without ceasing means that we are also in regular dialogue with the Lord. You know, most of us engage in self-talk. Well, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm strange. But, you know, throughout the day, I will talk to myself. Uh, What do I need to be doing here? What is this about? Okay, um, what are the people of the church really going to think if I say this? Right? As I'm writing something in a newsletter. Will they understand it? Won't they understand it? How do people read what I'm doing here? And what does that mean? A lot of self-talk. You may do that. As believers, that self-talk is to be replaced with God talk. We talk to God about all these things. We're to ask God about what we're to do with this. We're to ask God what he thinks about this. We're to ask God and have those conversations with him and listen. Listen to the Holy Spirit because he speaks into our hearts and into our minds. We are to be in regular dialogue with God. Finally, praying without ceasing requires us to be in formal prayer regularly and often. Paul said to the Romans in his very first chapter that he remembers them without ceasing, that very same word, in his prayers. It doesn't mean all the time that he's engaged in that, but it means whenever he prays, he remembers them. It is often and repeatedly. And that's what it means here. And while faith and action go together, God commands that we pray and be in constant dialogue with him, relying upon him so that whatever we do and whatever we face, we face it with him. Maybe the greatest thing that we can come to realize, and one of the great things that we can be thankful for, is that while other people will fall short, while other people will disappoint us, while other people cannot be with us at all times in everything, God can and does. He is utterly faithful. And we can trust that He will be with us in all these things. He doesn't take away our pain and suffering. He doesn't take away our struggles. But He'll walk with us through them. He'll carry us when we need to be carried on eagle's wings. And he'll comfort us when we need comforting. He'll also give us a swift kick when we need one of those too. Because he's a great father. 
That leaves us with the third admonition, giving thanks in all things. Again, I want to look at the pattern of what it doesn't mean and what it does mean. It doesn't mean that we have to like everything that is happening to us. It doesn't mean that we have to go, oh goody, look at this, we have a trial and a tribulation. Isn't that great? Can you believe it? Only masochists love pain and suffering for pain and suffering's sake. God doesn't want us to be masochists. That is not his intention. God is saying that we must face our life with spiritual principles. And those spiritual principles at times will cost us. They may cost us a job because we have to say no to what we know is wrong or immoral. They may cause us persecution because we have to, in the face of standing up and um, being faithful, we find that there are those who would turn against us. It may mean that we are ostracized and rejected, even by loved ones and family members. And that is because we are choosing to live by greater principles, the principles that the Word has laid out for us. We can give thanks, not because we like the pain, not because we like these things, but because we know that God is walking with us in them. And he assures us that he will be with us through them. What does it mean then to give thanks in all circumstances? Well, first, it means that there is a conscious choice we make to respond to the hard things of life with faith in God's goodness. Consider Jesus, who on the last night of his earthly life, he gathers the disciples together. Now he's been telling them that he has longed to have this Passover meal with them. And yet, what does this Passover meal mean? It means that he is on his way to incredible suffering, and the death upon the cross. But it also means that he is going to fulfill his purpose. He came to die upon that cross, to take upon himself the wrath of God, to pay the price to redeem us so that we might be forgiven. Not just us, but all people who would place their trust in him. And so, what does Jesus do in the face of a horrendous death, which Isaiah does an incredible job, right, of spelling out in the suffering servant song? How we couldn't even tell who he was. He was so badly beaten. Remember, he took 39 lashes. No small deal. He was mocked, he was spit on, and he was placed upon a cross to die a gruesome death, a slow death of suffocation. And yet, there is Jesus 
giving thanks as he lifts up the bread and as he gives his disciples the cup. And he says to them, remember me in this. He thanks God for what he's about to endure. The horror of it all. He does because he knows God's goodness is going to be available to everyone. And he does because he knows that God's goodness is helping him to fulfill his very purpose. Who among us wouldn't think God is good if we live fully fulfilling our purposes in this life? Knowing that we have, even if it's horrendous or difficult. Giving thanks in all circumstances is a choice to emulate Jesus, to emulate the martyrs of the Christian faith, past and present and future. And the thing that we know about such persecution is that God has used it to advance the gospel so that people throughout the world will hear the good news. Now when we think about that, that's a pretty incredible thing and there is much to be thankful for. The other thing that it means is that we have a perspective, a great spiritual perspective upon this life. And here's the thing I want to say to you about that. It's impossible for someone who has faith in Jesus not to be thankful I want you to think about that. It is impossible for a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, to not be thankful. Even if you took everything away in this life, even if there is nothing more, our reward is in heaven. Is it not? And God has forgiven our sins in this world, has He not? And He has given us the gift of His Holy Spirit, has He not? Can you understand why I say it is impossible for a follower of Jesus not to be thankful? Now why does this thankfulness this gratitude to God have the power to change our lives. Let me say one thing, not from the text, but uh, from what I wrote, but a point that I want you to pay attention to. Those who are not grateful to God, those who feel entitled 
It seems as though when we read the very first chapter in Romans, that is the characteristic of pagans. When Paul begins to describe people who are lost from God and how they're caught up in all of that, that ingratitude, that entitlement spirit, that, you know, whatever it is, I don't need to be thankful to the creator of all things. That is the opposite of faith. So with that in mind, let's consider the power to change our lives by expressing thanks to God. When we give thanks to God, it changes things for us because it changes how we see and live in the present moment. It not only changes what we see, but it changes how we think about it, and therefore it changes our behaviors and how we're responding to it. And that changes everything in the present moment. There is a story about a rabbi, a complaining man, and a goat. It seems that this man from Budapest came to the rabbi to say to him, life is unbearable. There are nine of us living in one room. What can I do? The rabbi answered, take your goat into the room with you. The man was incredulous, but the rabbi insisted, do what I say and come back in a week. A week later, the man came back looking even more distraught than before. I can't stand it, rabbi. The goat is filthy. The rabbi instructed him to go home and let the goat out. Then come back in a week. When the man returned, at the end of that week, he was radiant, beaming, explaining that life is beautiful. We enjoy every minute of it now that we have no goat and there's only nine of us. When we learn to give thanks in all circumstances, we are just like that man who came to see his circumstances as different. And as a result, approached everything that was going on differently. Giving thanks in all circumstances is the power to change how we see and live in the present moment. That's the point. Giving thanks in all circumstances also has the power to change our life because it moves our focus from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. The truth is, we live in the little story of our lives. Even as believers of Christ, we have a tendency to want to see things just in the little story of our life. Well, this is happening to me right now, and I don't like it, and I don't understand it, and it's really, you know, I need this to stop. And it's about now and the little story of our life. But when we give thanks, we're looking at a much bigger, broader thing. We're looking at God being sovereign over it all, and we're looking at this circumstance that we're in, that little one over there, we're looking at it from the big picture, from God's story. The little story 
is your story and my story, but the big story is God's story. And when we look at the big story, we're living inside of God's story, and we're looking at what God is doing, how he is acting redemptively in our lives and in the lives of others. So we're looking at these things, not from, oh man, this is terrible, I hate it. Why don't you stop it? You want some cheese with that wine or what? Nope. Okay, God, I'm caught up in this stuff and I don't like it, but you got a plan and you're working it out and you're sovereign and you're Lord and I know that you're going to use this for greater good. So I can't wait to see. In fact, I'd like it to happen sooner than later, but I can't wait to see. We live in the big story. We move from a self-centered focus that we're constantly struggling with, right? Paul says we have to die every day to ourselves. Take up our cross and follow Him so that we can live in the big story, God's story of what He's doing. Giving thanks in all circumstances has the power to change things in your very life because it strengthens God's hold upon us and it breaks the influence of evil. It strengthens God's hold upon us and it breaks the influence of evil. We read in James this, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here's the reality of things. Before you and I ever made a decision to profess Jesus as Savior and Lord, we lived in the center of our life. We may have grown up in the church We may not be able to recognize a time when we made that decision to believe. We may think that we believed all the way back when we first started. We didn't. What is the language of a two-year-old? Me. 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 We're at the center of our world, not God. We start there. Everybody starts there. I remember somebody telling me that, you know, youth pastors don't make great pastors. I said, you've got to be kidding me. I was a youth pastor. Not that I'm a great pastor, but I was a youth pastor. But I said, honestly, most of us adults are just arrested adolescents. There's an awful lot of me going on in the church. Me. What happens is, as life comes up against us and we deal with hardness, difficulty, maybe we feel persecuted, maybe we are, whatever it is, we begin to cope with life with patterns of thinking. Okay? We develop different patterns of thinking depending on who we are. And we do it to defend ourselves so that we can survive the pain and the hurt that we feel. Because it can be overwhelming, can't it? I mean, I remember as a kid, just feeling so alone and so lost. And we had this mulberry tree, big mulberry tree in the backyard. And I would go there and I would climb up in the tree where nobody could see me. And I would cry. And I would cry out to God. And he would meet me there. 
He would meet me there. We all feel pain, and we all deal with it in different ways. But we deal with it with patterns of thinking. And these patterns of thinking defend and protect us. But as we all know, these patterns of thinking, as they continue to live in our flesh nature, that's the sin nature, that's the me nature in all of us that we can't get rid of until we leave this body that the Bible says we're going to live in and deal with. Believe it or not, I went blank. You like that? Happens to preachers too. Well, in the midst of that, these things continue in our life and they become prisons. We have these walls to defend us, but what we find out one day is there's no door to come in and out of it. We're locked in. And as a result, we keep people out. And we keep God out. And it doesn't really work. Now, when we come to saving faith in Jesus, we trust that God will defend and protect us. We place ourselves in His hands, right? That He will defend us. We don't need these patterns of thinking. What kind of patterns of thinking am I talking about? Denial, fantasy, withdrawal, displacement, projection, rationalization. This is a favorite of mine I'm about to say. Masking what we feel with anger. This is a favorite of others that I know. Masking what we feel with the pretense of helplessness. And even anesthetizing our pain with addictions. To counter these patterns of thinking in our life. God has given us his Holy Spirit who is sanctifying us so these patterns have less and less impact upon our life and become less and less. And we can live more and more depending upon and relying upon God and trusting in his Spirit. But while we live in this flesh, our spirit And that sin nature are at war with each other. This is what Paul writes about it in Galatians. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. We are dealing with it all the time, even though we may have this wonderful relationship with Jesus. It's a reality. Here's the other thing, though, that the Bible tells us. Satan tries to mess with us. He wants to separate us from God. And one of the things that Satan loves to do is to tweak that flesh nature to see if he can trigger us so that we'll start thinking in those patterns and relying upon ourselves rather than relying upon God. Paul says this, in Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. Put on the whole of armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. 
Satan would love to tweak those patterns of thinking in your life. Sometimes they're referred to as strongholds. When we give thanks to God in all circumstances, we are saying no to the schemes of Satan. We are saying no to going backward to the patterns of these thoughts of self-reliance. And we are saying no to trusting ourselves or trusting something else. When we give thanks to God in all circumstances, we are saying yes to God. We are saying yes to his sovereignty. We are saying yes to trusting him. We are saying yes to relying upon him. We are saying yes to submitting to him. We are saying yes to obedience to how he wants us to live. Giving thanks to God in all circumstances has the power to change our lives because it affirms, demonstrates, and reinforces that we are defined by the spiritual reality of our relationship with Jesus. And this is not by our might and not by our power, but by surrendering to God's Spirit within us. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. He helps us to resist the devil and to live faithfully in relationship to Jesus. And if you're struggling at all today, then consider submitting to Jesus and submitting to the Spirit of God. Life for the pilgrims was not easy. Yet on that first Thanksgiving, they celebrated the Lord's faithfulness, giving thanks in all circumstances, knowing that it is God's will. Together with rejoicing always and praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances helps us to be like them, living with greater faith and trust in God. My friends, whatever you may be facing, now or in the future, whatever we may be facing together as a church, let us face it, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the encouragement we have in it. We thank you that it is because of you we can pray without ceasing, rejoice in always, and give thanks in all circumstances. I pray that you will just help us, Lord, to practice thanksgiving, to be grateful for all the things you have given to us, spiritually and materially. Lord, you are abundant in your gifts of grace and forgiveness, of the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, your love for us. For these and many more things, we give you thanks. Stay standing. Uh, one question, should we be thankful to God for our trials and tribulations?
Absolutely. James tells us that uh, we should count it all joy because God is making us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing through those trials and tribulations. And Paul tells us that God is producing character and endurance in Romans. And uh, those things produce hope in us. So, yes, we should be giving thanks for trials and tribulations. Now, as I close, I want to offer benediction, and then I want us to sing the doxology together. Can we do that? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace, both now and unto life eternal. Amen.